Hello, it's Tom here. Before we get into the show, I have a very exciting announcement for you all. This week, we launched Spiked Supporters, our online hub for regular donors complete with exclusive perks. So from now on, those who give £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year will be able to comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events. You'll get a discount on all the items in our shop as well. And you'll be able to bookmark articles as you browse in your very own Spiked Supporters account. To kick things off, we also have an extra special offer. Supporters can claim a free ticket while stocks last to our upcoming Zoom event on the 15th of June, where Brendan O'Neill will be in conversation with the great Rod Liddle, surely one not to be missed. This is all our small way of saying thank you, really, to all of you who fund our work. You are absolute heroes because Spikes is completely free, and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure anyone anywhere can read us and we're hugely grateful to you all for that so regular donors who already give five pounds or more each month or 50 pounds or more a year you're already eligible to join spike supporters you should have got an email from us about this but if you haven't just get in contact at the email address supporters at spiked-online.com and we'll get you set up for an account and if you don't give to spike yet now is surely the perfect time it's really easy to do just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters and there you can set up your donation and set up your spiked supporters account thank you all from everyone at spiked and now finally on with the show hello and welcome to the spiked podcast i'm fraser myers and with me this week we have spiked's deputy editor tom slater hello and spike columnist ella whelan hi coming up on the show we'll discuss anti-semitism lockdown gender critical feminism and prince harry Police have arrested four people after a video appearing to show anti-Semitic language being shouted from a convoy of cars in central London. We stand with our Jewish friends and neighbours who have sadly been subjected to a deeply disturbing upsurge in anti-Semitism. We will not allow it to grow and fester. As the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has intensified, there have been numerous outbursts of anti-Semitism in Britain, Europe and the United States. Tom, do you want to talk to us a bit about this? Well, it's really horrendous and kind of inevitable, really, it feels like. When the Israel-Palestine conflict flares up, you do see these incredibly open instances of anti-Semitism. I mean, we got a real taste for it last weekend where you had that slew of incidents. So there was a synagogue in Norwich, which got defaced with a swastika and kike and free Palestine. There was the rabbi in Northeast London who was attacked and the attackers apparently shouted anti-Semitic things as they did so. And then I think the thing that really went around the internet and the thing that got a lot of people talking about this was this seemingly kind of Islamist, allegedly pro-Palestine, but ultimately anti-Semitic kind of motorcade that was going around um, Finchley Road and heavily Jewish parts of Northwest London, talking about raping Jewish girls, killing people's mothers, just the most outwardly brutal anti-Semitism that I think people have, have seen for some time. And what I think is interesting about this, first of all, that people are quite shocked. This is something that sort of goes on under the surface, um, which I think a lot of mm. people in the general population just aren't aware of, that there is this level of anti-Semitic bigotry, particularly kind of Islamist anti-Semitic bigotry, which exists and that flares up in very brutal ways. But I think what was also quite striking is that it hasn't really sparked the kind of discussion that you would expect. I mean, just 
as an example, you know, where there was the pro-Palestine march in London and there was this big anti-Semitic inflatable depicting this supporter of Israel with a hook nose and horns and all the rest of it, which Jeremy Corbyn was giving a speech kind of metres away from. If you think about the equivalent happening, you know, mm. some sort of rally in which there was a mainstream Tory politician giving a speech where black people were being depicted as monkeys or something like this, understandably, you know, there would be this huge kind of amount of soul searching. But it's just kind of been accepted that this exists when people talk about it, particularly on the left, they just want to say, well, that doesn't excuse from Palestine. They try to kind of change the subject when what we're talking about is something very specific. It hasn't quite kind of impacted upon people how serious this problem is and how it always flares up in relation to a foreign conflict, which Jews obviously have some connection to in Britain, but at the same time are in no sense responsible for or should be held account for it, particularly in a racialized way. So it's, it's really disgusting, but this just flares up time and time again and we really shouldn't be surprised by it yeah i mean the aftermath of this feels a lot like you know some of the discussion around the labor anti-semitism scandal where you felt that every time you know you'd want to talk about it people would not know what you're talking about they know there's this yeah. thing this anti-semitism thing but they wouldn't know what the examples were in in a way that you just can't imagine for any other kind of racism you know what you know people know what anti-muslim bigotry looks like people know what anti-black racism looks like they know how it expresses itself but there's always just this sort of you know even just among the normal public they don't know what's necessarily going on ella yeah the response to the in particular the blow up doll was really interesting because like you say tom in any other context if you even had the hint or the whiff or the suggestion Mm. of something going on that was discriminatory or racist there'd be no question it'd be completely you know condemned there were lots of people on twitter to point out fair enough it did, was intended as a depiction of sheikh mohammed um from the uae but undeniably in the context with the red eyes the accentuated nose the missiles for fingers you know the context of a wider problem of anti-semitism you know the best thing that you can say for that is the person who chose to bring that you know, that inflatable to that rally you know made a big mistake that's the best thing that you can say and it's quite clearly it was intended to rile that kind of anti-semitic feeling that is prevalent among some pro-palestine not all but some pa- pro-palestine supporters and so it's it's really grotesque because you can't come to the conclusion of anything else other than the fact that in particular anti-Semitism is a blind spot for so many people on the left. Daniel Benamy wrote a fantastic article for Spiked this week in which he, the main point he makes is that so much of the discussion about the Israel-Palestine conflict has been reduced down to this very simplistic idea of good versus evil, mm-hmm. even to the point at which I've found it bizarre that people have been, fair enough, honing in on the fact that kids are being killed by you know, Israeli attacks at Palestinian kids, it's wrong to kill kids. But would it be okay if it wasn't kids that they were killing? It was other people. There's a huge amount of moralism going on, which Daniel makes the point, evades the actual political situation, which is a very complicated one mm. and actually needs to be looked in the context of what's happening today. And it's perfectly possible and reasonable, and I think right for you to criticize, from my point of view, to be extremely critical of the Israeli state's actions and extremely critical of the way in which it's discriminating against Palestinians and persecuting Palestinians over the years and not slip into or be blind to or explain away anti-Semitism. It's pretty easy. It's pretty simple. I don't understand why so many people are so willfully ignoring it. Yeah, and and simply just to not import that conflict into the country because it has nothing to do with people in Britain. It's nothing to do with Jews in Britain, has nothing to do with, you know, Muslims in Britain. This is a long running kind of international conflict. Mm. But for some reason, we, as we know, it's become a bit of a, 
understandably in many ways, but a bit of a cause celebre. And I don't think that's actually done Palestinians any good, the way that this cause has been taken up by the left. But also in in relation to anti-Semitism, we should talk a bit about the role identity politics Mm -hmm. has played in this. I mean, what do you think, Tom? Well, this is the kind of David Baddiel thesis of Jews don't count, which is under the current kind of modish left-wing approach to anti-racism, is because they have this pre-existing hierarchy of victimhood. Jews are essentially white. That's kind of how they think about it in many respects, that they don't really have um, a lot of the kind of oppression points, if you like, which would lead you to be more concerned about it. Uh, Many people who practice this kind of very grotesque form of anti-racism will dress it up in far more kind of convoluted language but it basically that's what it boils down to Mm. it's because of the fact that they do lump Jews together effectively as a kind of a a global oppressor class which expresses itself in the Israel-Palestine conflict which also at the margins you'll see people drift into discussions about the banks about foreign policy and because of that they not only excuse anti-semitism as Ella was saying they often trip into it themselves this is something that you've seen on the Labour left a particular magnifying glass put on it during the Corbyn years, where people would just move effortlessly from anti-Israel sentiment, which is a bit extreme in and of itself, you know, raging against a country's right to exist is something which doesn't really apply seemingly to any other state, but into outright anti-Semitism. The problem is it's now almost indistinguishable. You go on a pro-Palestine march and you see certain slogans, placards, uh, floats, etc., and the old anti-Semitic tropes are just projected onto Israel. So the blood libel, it's just the idea that the IDF delight in killing children. Um, you see the attempt to talk about the way in which the Jews previously kind of ran world affairs. You know, The Guardian a few years ago published a cartoon in which Netanyahu had, I think it was whoever was the prime minister and president of the US at the time, as finger puppets. Mm. It's incredible how much one has mapped onto the other. The question is, how do you separate out the parts? Because the problem is it's quite clear that many anti-Semites and Islamists in this country will willfully use the Palestine situation as an excuse to go out and be vile and anti-Semitic in public. But on the other hand, you've got the left, who historically were supposed to be challenging this kind of bigotry, who because of their fixation, shall we say, on the Israel-Palestine conflict, feel they have to go through so much throat clearing before they even talk about it. So it is about separating out those parts. The difficulty is how do you do that? Because mm. in a lot of people's heads, they are just kind of inextricably linked at this point. Hello. I think the thing that gets lost in all of this is that Daniel makes a great point that the context of the current political moment in relation to Hamas and also in relation to the Israeli state is really important. Because fundamentally, there's two things going on at the same time. You've got this sort of the growth of anti-Semitism in the West and particularly in the UK among the British Labour left, um, that's happening at the same time that, you know, Israel's attacks on Palestinians and the relationship between Israel and Palestine is contextually lost. And the point that Daniel makes is that you've got a sort of liberation struggle happening on the, on the surface of it. But the problem with the Palestinian side is that Hamas is in the ascendancy and it's a, you know, it's a growth of an extreme Islamism of the type that you would never want to support. And so mm. you, the movement to consider this in terms of Israel evil, Palestine good, is a real reduction of what is actually happening in those particular political contexts. If we want to talk about the right of Israel to exist, any kind of discussion about Palestinian independence is being clouded by this sea of anti-Semitism that isn't helping either side and isn't helping any discussion of actually what would be a good solution for Israelis and Palestinians, any kind of future out of this conflict. Spikes is producing more content than ever. 
And I know you want to keep up with all the fantastic articles, essays, podcasts, and interviews that we're publishing every day. If you never want to miss anything we do, make sure you sign up to our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spike team, usually Tom Slater or myself. To get all of that, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked now. Now, back to the Spikes podcast. The other big news this week is, of course, the coronavirus has been the big news of the year, but the appearance of the Indian variant of coronavirus in a few towns in Britain has basically led the government to waver on whether it will lift the social distancing restrictions on the 21st of June. So you have outbreaks in towns like Bolton and Bedford. They've been blamed on a number of factors, the slowness of Boris to close the border, the failures of test and trace, and vaccine hesitancy, among other things. What do we make of this possibility of a delayed reopening. I mean, that'd be a disaster, wouldn't it? It'd definitely be a disaster, but also built on really shaky grounds when you think about it, because the yeah. two big things that people are talking about at the moment is how transmissible and therefore potentially scary the Indian variant would be. In recent days, after a hell of a lot of fear-mongering, that's been completely walked back. I mean, even when it was being talked about that it was, I forget the precise term that they use, but potentially 50% more transmissible. Mm. Turns out that was the phrase that they used, I forget it was like reasonably plausible or something yeah. like this. That is actually a technical term that means there's like a 50-50 chance that it's 50% <laughs> more transmissible. And given the fact that even when people were talking about it evading the vaccines, that would only be to the extent that you might still get infected with it. It wasn't mm. that it was necessarily going to wipe out people who had already been double vaccinated as if all of this had been for nothing. And then, of course, you've got the vaccine hesitancy question. We've got the highest level of vaccine positiveness, if you like, yeah. in the world. 90% of people have either had the jab or said they will have the jab. And this is something which is going to be the envy of basically other, every other country trying to make our way out of this. Now, there are pockets in which people aren't taking it up. They do fall unevenly along kind of different ethnic groups and things like that. More outreach certainly should be used. It's interesting that in areas that have been hit by the Indian variant, you're seeing hesitancy being overcome in those areas as well, because again, yeah. the threat is being kind of posed again to them and people are rethinking. Again, this is such a strange basis on which to talk about rolling things back, given the fact that the threat of the Indian variant such as it is was unknown. And since then, it's, it seems like it's nowhere near as worrying as people first thought it was. But also this terror about the vaccine refusenics when there's so few of them. Yeah. So it would be a disaster anyway. We need to get our freedoms back. We need to get the country back on its feet, all the rest <laughs> of it. But on this basis is enough to have a whole round of soul searching. It doesn't bode well for us coming out of this properly and fully in any time soon, does it? Well, exactly. And if we look back to where we were in uh, November, December, I mean, we'd have killed to have this level of vaccine take up, not just the success of the rollout, which has been in and of itself pretty marvellous, but the enthusiasm and the willingness that, you know, the country has had to come forward and take their vaccines is extraordinary, way beyond what was estimated. Scientists like the Royal Academy thought that 36% of the public was likely to not take the vaccine because of fears about safety and things like that. I mean, that has to be put in the context when these surveys first came out, the vaccines hadn't even been approved yet, although they were kind of on the line to it. But now, you know, it seems to me that Vaccine hesitancy may not be a serious cause of this problem, but it is the explanation that lends itself to the kind of policies that, you know, the government is considering that some of the kind of um, pro-lockdown people are considering replacing lockdown 
in particular vaccine passports, COVID status certification. It seems to be almost a bit of a crutch to argue for those ideas that really are not medically necessary, but whether they make people feel safe or, or what, or whether there is something a bit darker there that people are losing their marbles a little bit over the virus still. I don't know, but Ella. But it's really important to be specific and it's that the government is just, you know, really opposed to doing anything other than talking in generalisations. But when, you know, you listen to the radio and you hear them talking about the fact that there is, you know, a problem in Bolton and you and they use the word threat and you think, mm. okay, what do you mean by that word threat? And it's really important to differentiate that it isn't, they and they say, it's not that hospitalizations are rising. You think, okay, people aren't necessarily dying in their, in their kind of hundreds and thousands. Okay. What does the threat then mean? It means, you know, potentially transmissibility. And you think, well, okay, but if most older people and vulnerable people are, are hmm. vaccinated and it transmits between young people, putting the, you know, the kind of problem of, uh, variants and mutations aside, that threat then becomes less and less visibly like a threat and it becomes, a question of using that old phrase that's now so controversial, herd immunity, which is yeah. that, you know, how does that play into it? But also the case of the specifics of when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, talking about people in Bolton, they had a councillor on, I think it was maybe the local MP, who said, you know, the problem is we've got vaccine hesitancy among some, you know, constituents who live in large houses, multi-generational homes. And talking in vague terms, you think what you're talking about is a small number of ethnic minorities who we know have grannies and granddads living with them and lots of kids. And they, because of their, uh, you know, genetics, we know that they're more susceptible to, you know, suffering great harm from this virus. But like, be specific. Mm. That That isn't the whole of society. That's a small section of society. Hone in on them. Make sure they get what they need in terms of the vaccine. But for God's sake, don't use that as an excuse to then suddenly call off the 21st of June yeah. and plunge the whole nation into despair. Because I think part of the problem is that it's almost like a kind of carrot on a stick that the government keeps tweaking back away from us, which is that it leads to that problem of, you know, freedoms are not something that we control. It's something that the government grants to us. And, you know, while we might all have been really excited about the 21st of June, that power play is still very much there, which is a problem. We have to get past that idea that this is just something that we have to kind of be good <laughs> for, or that the virus has to ha be in the right situation in order for us to get freedoms are more important than that. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think the threat of the Indian variant needs to be put into context. You know, when they say that it's on the rise, I mean, it is on the rise, but it's in the context of falling cases more broadly. The Indian variant is rising as a proportion, but cases still down on last week, hospitalization still down on last week, deaths going down. We have the lowest case rates in the G7. You know, if you'd have seen this data in March 2020, and just, you know, didn't think that it was, there was going to be a spike or something. There would never have been a lockdown. If this was a, you know, if this was a new unfolding situation and things were this safe, we would never have mm. any kind of control measures whatsoever. I mean, it just seems complete, other than, you know, carrying on with the vaccine program. It just seems completely crazy unless the government is pursuing some kind of stealth zero COVID mm. strategy. Which I don't think they are. I think the problem yeah. is, is that they're responding to actually far more basic kind of political imperatives, which is the mm. fact that there was this perception that they didn't act quick enough and they weren't cautious enough previously. Exactly. So they've got this kind of performance of caution now. I mean, reportedly Boris Johnson is more keen to open up, but the people around him aren't. In general, you can see that the direction of travel was being governed by the fact that there is still this level of kind of ultra caution. I mean, I can't even think of the, I can't even almost conceive of the moment where Boris Johnson would get on television and be like, it's over. Yeah. You almost feel like he would there would be such a consequence to that from certain sections of the press, a certain level of hysteria, all the rest of it. 
So it just feels like even at the situation that we are at now, even when the vaccine program is basically concluded, I feel my worry is that this is still going to be something which, even as restrictions are kind of peeled away, the idea that it still has to be kind of managed in the background and therefore we could potentially go back into restrictions at a particular point mm. does feel like a very real prospect. I'm, I'm not suggesting that they're desperate to lock us down over and over again, but at the same time, you, it doesn't fill you with confidence when you see that. And the, the flip side of that, I guess, is the point that it's making people in society not feel very confident about reassuming the freedoms that we've been given back, if you like, yeah. um, relearning how to be in society, trying to shake some of the habits that we've built up the way in which you just see, you know, elderly people at bus stops, you know, have definitely been double jabbed, still kind of keeping their distance, wearing masks, even when outside, all this kind of stuff. Mm. The more the fear mongering goes on, which I think, again, is more about politics than it is about science, frankly, at this point, the more that that kind of cautiousness is going to exist in society as well. And I think that's that's bad for getting our freedoms back on the other side of things. Definitely. And, and you know, we should talk a bit about the scientists because, you know, they've produced new modelling this week, suggesting that, you know, thousands and thousands of hospitalizations could arrive um, this summer, assuming that this uh, Indian variant is 50% more transmissible, which we assume it isn't now. But you do wonder, you know, are they looking at the real world? Are they looking at other countries? Are they looking at what's happening in Texas, for instance, where all restrictions were lifted um, around 11 weeks ago? And this week it's just had its first, you know, zero death day since uh, the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, there are some places that are, I would say, leading the way in showing that you can throw off the restrictions once a sensible proportion of the population is, is vaccinated and not have too much to worry about. You know, we are in a very envious position in terms of how much control we have over this virus. So let's not waste that. Let's, you know, get out and live. You're listening to the Spikes podcast. This podcast, like all of Spikes content, is free. There's no paywalls or no paid subscriptions. We rely on the support of our loyal listeners and readers like yourself to keep producing our groundbreaking podcasts, interviews, articles, essays, and more. So, if you're a regular listener to our show, please do consider donating to Spikes, or even better, becoming a regular donor. Even £5 per month can make an enormous difference. To start your regular donation today, just go to spikes-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the Spike podcast. So we spoke last week about the government's new free speech requirements at universities. I mean, let's put those to one side. And But there have been some cases this, that have come up this week that show the extent to which certain views on campus, particularly feminist views, gender critical feminist views, um, have been targeted for censorship and no platforming. Uh, Tom, do you want to talk a bit about this? Yeah, so I guess the big headline grabbing one was the Lisa Keogh case, if that's how you say her surname correctly. Ella was trying to explain to me earlier. <laughs> I've forgotten. Which is one of those ones which you read and you think, this must be a joke, or this must be a hoax, or mm. there must be something here that I'm missing. But it was reported in the Times. She's done a lot of media interviews since. She's spoken to Spike, of she course. She's spoken to Spike this week, of course. Q&A with Paddy Hannum that everyone should read, where she was in a Zoom seminar and a series of Zoom lectures and for basically offering what are pretty widely held opinions and in some cases just straightforward biological facts was complained against by her fellow students and put through this disciplinary process, which I think is still ongoing. Some of the statements include suggesting that women have vaginas, that they are born with that equipment. Also, when a discussion came up about 
mixed martial arts. And I think there's one particularly famous um, trans woman who competes in mixed martial arts event. She offered the opinion that maybe that's not a particularly good idea given the biological advantage. And for all of this was, as I say, put through this disciplinary procedure. It's completely remarkable. But at the same time, we've seen this time and time again, you know, the sort of gender critical views on campus are genuinely the most maligned views on campus at the moment. Mm. The way in which you see whether, you know, a, a Selena Todd or Joe Phoenix is another case I'm sure we'll talk about. When they try to speak on campus or when they become the sort of target for campus protests and all the rest of it, the language and the vitriol is the equivalent you would see when like fascists would try. I mean, it's, it's very yeah. similar, the kind of like fuck turf scum type stuff. It's so similar to the sort of language that would be deployed in the attempts to, you know, protest, counter protest or no platform sort of fascist speakers, etc. And I think it's just kind of proof that if you allow censorship to go on on campus, but also if you have this kind of unhinged demonization <laughs> that uh, is not at all rooted, that you can very quickly get into a situation where views, which many people would find acceptable, we're not here talking about extremist, racist, scumbags yeah. that we can all agree on. People who have a very viable case to make, shall we say, are treated in much the same fashion. But on campus, you just see a little microcosm of what happens when you let all of those dynamics run right without sticking up for free speech tolerance and all the rest of it. It will eventually kind of mutate into something as absurd as this. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's in a way, that's why, you know, as free speech advocates, you have to stand up for the extremes because once you allow free speech to be chipped away at, once you say no free speech for fascists, then you end up with no free speech for, for feminists. It's the kind of inevitable um, progression of, of censorship. Does anyone want to talk about the Joe Phoenix case? Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's a really depressing indictment on how different a university campuses from the rest of society. I mean, I know campus politics and student politics in particular has always been a bit on the kind of, uh, you know, caricatured blue haired spectrum of things. <laughs> but where, if you have a situation in which Joe Phoenix, a professor being invited to speak about criminology, you know, a subject of her kind of interest and expertise and about the effect of and the consequences of, for example, allowing trans women to enter into um, women-only prisons and what that means for society, what that means for the prison system, you know, maybe objectionable if you if you think that, but certainly not a kind of rallying cry to against trans rights, a lecture from a professor, mm. when that is deemed to be too extreme to uh, be hosted on campus, when in fact students, this is the most appalling part, students report that they felt harm to their actual self and being at the idea, the prospect of Joe Phoenix even actually existing physically on campus at the same time and space as them, then you have to ask what that, you know, what is going on on campus, but also I think more importantly, what is going on within university administrations that at some point an adult in the room has to say, yeah. it is completely unacceptable and not a viable position for you to say that this person is causing you harm by their very being. There's a, there's a real cowardice at the heart of all of this, which we've talked about many times on Spiked about how, you know, the drive to censor is really just an opting out of debate. But when it comes to discussions about gender, and in particular, you know, discussions with gender critical feminists who I've a lot of the time criticized for their sort of biological essentialism. There is a debate to be had when it's having real world consequences. Mm. If this particular ideology of trans activism is having a negative impact on, for example, women in prisons, you've got to talk about it yeah. and you've got to have the courage to go forward and put, put your view forward. If you think that Joe Phoenix or Lisa Kyo is wrong, argue with them. Don't try and silence them. It's because in silencing them, what you really suggest is that you can't handle the debate. And I think in this that kind of cowardice that people really pick up on. And finally, let's talk a bit about Prince Harry. He's made two kind of striking interventions while he's 
doing his promotional tour for his next Oprah mm. video. We look forward to that. <laughs> so, this time talking about his mental health, I suppose that's not so different to, mm. to last time. Firstly, he talked about the kind of genetic pain passed on to him from his father, Prince Charles. And then secondly, he said that the US First Amendment protecting free speech is bonkers. Mm. Um, Tom, do you want to comment on that? Oh, sorry. No, it isn't. I mean... The idea that Prince Harry has daddy issues as May has <laughs> <laughs> is definitely a subject of some interest to some people. But the whole idea of, in particular, Harry and Meghan being at the forefront, even though the you know Will and Kate do this as well, being at the forefront of this push for a really pathetic and reduced view of mental health. I mean, mm. any psychologist, psychiatrist listening to that, suggesting that there's genetic pain that moves down through the generations, will kind of cringe. It's such a crude understanding of mental health. But the uh, the funnier thing was, you know. His attack, his idea that he could, pompous as he is, come in as a member of the royal family, X, okay now, and go into America and tell Americans that the First Amendment is bonkers. And rightly, so many Americans came out and said, hang on a minute, mate, you have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. It's interesting to see that in the same week that Prince Harry spoke on a podcast about free speech and really other than a few kind of free speeches from from our crowd caused a fuss, no one said anything. At the same time, another straight white male joe rogan went on a podcast and talked about straight white males not being able to say you know anything they wanted in the p political censorship that was going on there two straight white males both talking about free speech people launch at joe rogan as being dangerous despite the fact that the other much paler has to be said white <laughs> male in harry was actually saying something more dangerous in relation to the first amendment so it that kind of hypocrisy made me more than chuckle it's a bit of a tired point now but the question about Harry and Meghan fleeing the UK to protect their privacy. And yet their whole kind of circuit around Oprah, mm. podcasts, glossy magazine interviews is to talk about their pain in public. Yeah. It's the kind of public as confessional, the public as kind of psychiatrist lounge. Like it's just this fascinating kind of relationship they now have with the press, but they constantly have to offer up what are allegedly the deepest, darkest secrets so about this. Yeah. Truth, yeah. truth really, bombs as Harry. This isn't someone taking pictures of them with a drone while they're walking in the park. You know, <laughs> this is about them talking about their own experiences. And it's really, really strange. And it's also, I think the, the First Amendment thing was quite funny because the full quote is bizarre. You know, he said, I think it's bonkers, but I don't know very much about it. <laughs> which I think it's, that's Harry summed up. But also yeah. it's kind of this woke politics summed up, which is like he knows what the high status opinion is. He instinctually agrees with it. He feels like he gets some sort of, sense of superiority by expressing it in public. He doesn't really know anything. Like, it's just that, <laughs> the thinness of it. And I think that's one of the things which Harry and Meghan, the reason they wind people up so much is just because of the fact that they sort of deign to be activists in one way, shape or form. You know, this new deal their foundation's got with Procter & Gamble. There's a funny backstory to that about a young Meghan complaining about a Procter & Gamble ever. But all of this is dressed up in the kind of language of activism, etc. But really it is just all about them really, getting an opportunity to talk about themselves or getting an opportunity to talk about how good they are and how enlightened they are. And it's just they're that kind of woke corporate politics in just a more risible form because they're kind of a bit bad and clunky at it in mm. a way. I think that's one of the things that, is so, that makes them so enraging is that they are just all of that, but they're just kind of crap at it at the same time, <laughs> which is quite fun. Thank you for listening to the Spiked Podcast. We'll be back next week, but in the meantime, make sure you keep up with all the latest from Spiked by signing up to our daily newsletter today on Spiked. Just go to spiked-online.com 
slash newsletters to sign up now.